Oh, good morning. Is this the halfway mark? What do you think? Wednesday morning. The best is yet to come, my friends. The best is yet to come. It's been so good to be with you and just getting to have more and more conversations and um, some people come helping me make connections um, of people that we have in common or where we've met before and then other people introducing yourself for the first time and um, I love it. So keep doing that. That's a blessing to me. I love being here. I love these people, these grounds. This is such a joy and a privilege. Thank you so much, Peter, for inviting me to be here, inviting our whole family to be here. I really appreciate it. But, you know, this is no surprise to any of you. For years, church leaders, historians have been saying that Christianity is dying in North America. Uh all you have to do is look at Western Europe, right? The soaring skyscrapers and the empty pews. We don't have a lot of soaring skyscrapers where I come from, but we do have our fair share of empty pews. <laughs> and, and so there is this, this sense, I think, sometimes, and, and I think it's maybe it's felt, maybe it's real, but that the church is losing its place somehow. And we have all kinds of reasons for this. There's the rise of secularism. There's the wounds that the church has inflicted on its own self with sexual abuse scandals and, and things like this. There's all kinds of things. Uh, but there's this feeling that Christian values are increasingly marginalized. And the language that I've heard some Christians use for this, maybe you have too, is, is the word remnant. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Have you ever heard people throw that word around? This idea of a remnant. And it is this word that it's a theme really that weaves itself all the way through scripture. And uh, the word remnant, it means something that's left over. It's a remainder. In a mathematical sense, it's it's what didn't divide into the whole. If we think about it in terms of a piece of fabric, you know, we cut our piece of fabric away and it's the piece that's left over. It's the remnant. In the Old Testament, it refers to what's left of a community after a catastrophe. It's what happened to Israel when they were invaded and, and, and taken into exile and carried off and the people who were left were the remnant. And so there's this idea that, um, I don't know, maybe it's not a word that you use in your everyday conversation. It's not really one that I use a lot. But I think sometimes we act like a particular kind of remnant people. We, uh, we talk like a people who has a remnant identity. You know, we, we live with this growing sense of opposition that, our voice is the minority voice in a majority culture, that God's people have endured an invasion of some kind and we've lost something or we're losing something. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Shake your head, yes, no. Okay, so, so this is sounding familiar and this particular kind of remnant identity, I think it kind of leaves us with two options. 
we have the option to either one, uh, it's the option of resistance where, where we can, we can resist. We can build higher walls. We can prepare for battle. Uh, we can go on the defensive or maybe even the offensive. We are prepared to fight for what we believe in. Only it's, it's sometimes hard to have a compelling Christian witness when we're prepared for battle, isn't it? <laughs> the other temptation, maybe not resistance, is assimilation. We're tempted to give in. It's, it's the Israelites in exile in Babylon. Uh, their great temptation was to accept the Babylonian way, to, uh, to bow down to the Babylonian gods. Because here's the thing, the work that it takes to be in the world but not of the world is long and lonely. And so sometimes it's just easier to give in, even if it's just a little bit at a time, even if it's just incremental before you know it, we no longer look like a people set apart. We no longer look like a remnant. And so these are the temptations. But I want to suggest this morning that there's a third way. And it's the way of the minor prophets. It's the way of the prophets. It's the way of the early church that we're looking at in the book of Acts as it struggles to stay in step with the Spirit, really to keep up with the Spirit. The Spirit was always a step ahead. It's not the way of assimilation. It's not the way of resistance. It's the way of humility. So turn to your neighbor and say, humility. <laughs> now turn to your other neighbor and ask them if they used very thin toilet paper this morning. If you weren't here last night, that will make no sense to you. But ask Peter, he'll tell you later. The way of humility. I want to take us to Acts chapter 15. That's, that's where we're going to settle in here this morning is, is Acts chapter 15. And so as you're turning there, I want to set it up for you a little bit. Because the church that we're looking at, this group of people in Acts chapter 15, they are a remnant. They understand themselves as a remnant, first of all, uh, because this is the identity that's been handed down to them from their Jewish tradition. They understand themselves as a remnant people. But on top of that, these are Jewish Christians. And so they have pulled away from, uh, from Judaism and, and they have you know, they, they're kind of like these Jewish Christians that have put their faith in Jesus Christ. They're a remnant of a remnant, right? So they have this kind of compounded remnant identity. And so the temptation that they have in this text to take on a defensive posture of resistance is huge. You can just feel it tugging and pulling at them as we read this text. And then in the other dire direction, the temptation just to, to go ahead and assimilate. For them, it would be assimilating back into Jewish culture. Would have been just so much easier for them. And so they have this push and pull between resistance and assimilation. And yet, 
they somehow have this deep sense of knowing they have to battle it out but they have this deep sense of knowing that a defensive or an accommodating posture are not postures out of which the church grows they are not the places of the rapid expansion of the gospel and they are not the place where they experience the overwhelming love of god that we were just talking about a moment ago okay so uh, so I want to turn to Acts chapter 15. And uh, start reading in verse 1. This is another long one this morning, not as long as last night. But it's, these texts are so good. Like I just, I get so excited about them and I just can't, I don't, I don't want you to miss any of it. So here we go. Certain individuals came down from Judea, from Judea to Antioch and we're teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Skipping down to verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers, some of the believers who were belonging to the party of Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. He's referring to Acts 10 with Cornelius. After much, oh, sorry, I went back to, I shouldn't look up from my page, so I lose my, my place. Uh, uh, shoot, there we go, and believe God who knows the heart showed that he accepts them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, but he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up, brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. And at this point, he starts quoting straight from the minor prophet Amos. He says, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, and the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. 
It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So I want to stop there this morning. So here is this passage. It's, we, we kind of go to Acts 15 and we have this sneak peek, this little window into a conversation in a room where it all happened. Anybody know the, uh, familiar with the Hamilton musical? There's that song, like nod your head with me, otherwise, okay, I've got two people who are familiar with Hamilton. Uh, but he, he, he sings that like, if there was a song in the background for Acts chapter 15, it would be uh, this song from Hamilton. No one else was in the room where it happened, you know? This, I'm not going to sing it for you. Uh, Kelly, you can maybe close us out later with that. No one else was in the room where it happened, the room where it happened, the room where it happened. Okay, thank you. That's all I got for you. I'm no Mo Diggs. I'm sorry. Um, but so that's kind of like what I hear in the background when I hear this song, except that the reality is that everybody was in the room where it happened. Uh, Paul was there, Barnabas was there, Peter was there, James was there, they were all there. And, and this is where it happens. This is 10 to 15 years after Jesus had ascended after Pentecost. Paul's just completed his first missionary journey. And, and just like the musical Hamilton, You've got politics, you've got arguments, you've got strong personalities, uh, you've got strong opinions, you've got intrigue, you've got all these things going on. The only difference is that rather than this, you know, the, the country is at stake, instead we have the entire gospel is at stake. So, so here is this remnant people. And they're kind of like this beleaguered remnant people because they're facing growing opposition from, uh, from Jewish leaders. And they're kind of like, we gotta, we gotta hunker down, we gotta hold out, and they're facing this crisis. The question is, could Gentiles be saved without being circumcised? And so Peter gets up to speak, Paul and Barnabas get up to speak, James gets up to speak, and these are all good Jews. And everyone expected them to stand up and say, hey, look, listen, we are a faithful remnant. We have to preserve our way. We can't let these Gentiles come in here bringing their cultic worship and their pagan worldview. We have to put a stop to this. Except that none of them said that. None of them said what anyone expected them to stay. Instead, they began to argue that God was raising up a faithful remnant outside of Israel, outside of God's chosen people, outside of these Jewish Christians, that, that they were expanding the idea of a faithful remnant. The idea of a remnant was a very familiar idea to them. You know, they had this idea, it was this kind of Old Testament idea that we see that, that's this picture of, you know, this huge, imagine this huge circle that is the people of God, God's children. And they understood that a remnant was like a little circle inside that big circle. It's the faithful few who have stayed true to God's truth and God's word inside the circle. 
and who are going to lead the people back to God. And what these guys stand up and do is they say, okay, that's all true. But also God is raising up. Imagine a circle sitting outside of the big circle. It's way over here all together in another place. They're saying God might be raising up a faithful remnant outside, outside of the church. So they didn't say what everybody expected them to say. First, Peter gets up and he recounts his experience with Cornelius. And, and, and he points out that God gave the Holy Spirit to uncircumcised Gentiles. And so he argues, like, look, if, if, if we couldn't bear the weight of the Mosaic law, if our forefathers couldn't bear the weight of the Mosaic law, why in the world would we ask the Gen? Why would we put that weight on the Gentiles as well? He says in verse 11, I love this. We believe it is through the grace of Jesus that we are saved just as they are. He doesn't say, we believe that they're saved just as we are. Did you catch that? Because we believe that we are saved just as they are. Huh. And then Paul and Barnabas get up and they're just telling stories. Uh, in case anybody thinks that Cornelius was some little anomaly, some special case scenario, you know, some out, outlier. Instead, they say, look, we have been traveling and everywhere we go, Every time the gospel is preached, Gentiles get saved and are filled with the Spirit. And they're just recounting story after story of God's wonders and, and miracles play by play. And then finally, <laughs> finally, James gets up. And in this mic drop moment, he decides the matter for everyone. And what does he do? He points to scripture. He takes them to Amos chapter 9 to support this argument to include the Gentiles and the people of God. He says in verse 15, the word of the prophets are in, are in agreement with this. And when he says this, he's talking about Everything we've been talking about, this idea that God is raising up a remnant outside the church. The prophets are in agreement with this. And in case you don't believe me, I'm going to take you straight to Amos chapter 9. And he quotes from Amos. He says, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. That idea of David's tent. I'm going to bring us back to that in a minute because I think it's important. But he says, we'll rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may see the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things. Things known from long ago. And so here is this pivotal moment in God's story. And James points to Amos to redefine the entity, the identity and the mission of God's remnant people. He says, yes, you are a remnant people, but God is 
also raising up a movement outside the church. And it's hard for us to even imagine, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around how upside down this would have sounded to the guys who were in the room. It would have felt like a brand new idea to them. But what James demonstrates is that no, 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 this is not a brand new idea. (laughs) This is a very, very old idea. And so Amos refers to, and then James, through Amos, refers to this tent of David. This tent of David. That that word tent that's used there, that James uses, is actually the same word that John uses in his gospel in 114 when he says that Jesus dwelt among us. It's actually the verb form of that same word, that Jesus tabernacled or tented among us. It's that same idea. And and here's Moses, and he's a shepherd, and he would have been very familiar, James too, with the Bedouin tents of that day. A long time ago, I bought Jeremy a tent for Father's Day. Seemed like an appropriate Father's Day gift. Some people get ties, we get tents. And so I bought Jeremy a tent. It was a five-man tent. At the time, it was a Coleman five-man tent. I thought, this is going to last us forever. At the time, we had two little tiny kids, and that thing was like a mansion. We could spread out. We could space it out. It was great. Well, you all know what happened, right? We had three kids, and then we had four kids. All of a sudden, we've got six of us cramming into a five-man tent, and then we got a dog, and she's not a small dog. And she thinks that, you know, she owns the world. So now we have six people and a dog cramming into the five-man tent. And you know what happens over time. Like, you know, people grow in all sorts of directions, actually. And so these tiny little kids start, you know, stretching up and getting lanky and long. And, and it was just not even that long ago that Jerry and like, this five-man tent is just not, we, we actually still need to buy a new one. But we got rid of it. We said, you know what? This is not going to work for us anymore. Our family has grown out of the tent. It's just not going to happen for us. Can't fit six practically, you know, grown-bodied adults and a dog into a five-man tent. Did you know that the Bedouin tents of Amos's day were never thrown out? Never. You see, they were made from goat's hair, and they would collect goat hair all year long. And then once a year, they would, you know, whatever section of their tent was the most torn or tattered, they would rip it out, and they would replace it with a new section. If the kid got married, instead of sending them off with a brand new tent into the sunset, no, 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 they just expanded the tent. They just added another section to the tent and made it bigger. They expanded the family tent and they made more room. And so in that way, a tent was never thrown out. The tent was handed down from father to son, generation to generation, without its ever being completely new or completely old at the same time. Do you see this? that this 
this tent of David that James is putting in front of the disciples this day in this mic drop moment that he's saying that this is new and it's old at the exact same time. That, that he has opened up and expanded the tent, not him, but, but the gospel of Jesus Christ has opened up and expanded the tent for the Gentiles. And, and in this way, James connects salvation all the way back to Amos, all the way back to the minor prophets, all the way back to the story that's been unfolding since the very beginning of time. He's saying, look, guys, the purposes of God were always about expanding the tent. God is raising up a remnant outside the tent. And the very momentum for the expansion of the gospel lies as much out there as it does in here. Hmm. I don't want us to miss this because I think it's tempting it's tempting to think that what was happening in this passage in Acts 15 was that it was about whether or not the Gentiles should be included in the church. In fact, I thought, I think that's what they thought was going on that day. Should the Gentiles be included in the church? And yet it's actually the other way around. You have to understand that that there are already Gentile churches that have popped up all across Asia Minor. There are churches that exist in places that Paul has never even set his foot into yet. Like the train has left the station. Imagine, you know, someday your daughter brings her uh boyfriend home that she's already been dating for six months and mom and dad think that they somehow have some sort of veto power in the decision. No. <laughs> She's already fallen in love with him. The train has left the station. You have to decide whether you're going to get on board or not. And this is what is happening here. It's, it's not so much whether the Gentiles will be included in the church. It's actually the other way around. The question may be whether the Jewish Christians will be included in this big worldwide massive movement of God that is still unfolding to this day. I think sometimes we run the same, but here's like, they almost missed it. Do you see that? They almost missed it. And I think sometimes we run the risk of almost missing it because we're looking inside the four walls of our church. We're looking inside the four walls of our denomination or maybe even in the four walls of our family. I don't know, but sometimes we have to see past. <laughs> to see outside the tent and realize that there are places in our communities and in our world where the train has already left the station, friends. The Holy Spirit is doing what the Holy Spirit promised to do. God is expanding the tent, and I don't want to miss it. Amen. So we have a choice. <laughs> we have a choice. We can respond 
as a remnant people with resistance. We can respond as a remnant people by assimilating, or we can respond with humility. How do we do that? How do we respond with humility? Well, man, we, we could spend a whole couple hours on that probably. I just want to suggest two things to you this morning. And um, it's just convenient that they also start with the letter H. I'm sorry. Sometimes I can't help myself. God is calling us to a hopeful humility. And he's calling us to a humility that is led by the Holy Spirit. Man, she talks about the Holy Spirit a lot. Have you noticed that? A hopeful humility. Friends, when are we going to stop acting like the church is falling apart and crumbling? Yeah, we're a remnant. But we are not the kind of remnant that has to hunker down and hold out. We should be encouraged because as Amos tells us, as James reminds us, the days of tearing down are over. We are in a new day and a new covenant of divine rebuilding. Amos said that God would rebuild David's tent. He would restore it. And the day of expanding the tent and letting more people in is here. We don't have to wring our hands in despair. Sometimes I wonder, like, where is the holy optimism that is supposed to characterize the, the Wesleyan church? <laughs> Someone told me that Wesleyans are known for their holy optimism. That doesn't just believe that, that God's redemption comes then, that God's power comes then, that it comes now, that there's a day now where God's power and authority can literally change the culture around us. A holy hopefulness born out of humility, knowing that God is doing this thing, not you and me, not the world around us. God is on his throne doing what he promised he would do. A humility led by the Holy Spirit. I realize that, you know, the danger in talking about an expanding tent is that sometimes it can smack a little bit of this kind of universalism of like, you know, hey, it doesn't matter what you believe or how you live. Everybody's welcome in the tent. Just come on in. The more, the merrier. And I just want to emphasize that is not what is happening in this text. If you look at the text, there is this consistent witness of the Spirit Notice every single example from Peter talking about Cornelius all the way down. They are all underscoring and emphasizing the witness of the Spirit, underscoring and emphasizing that the Holy Spirit is driving and behind all of this. So if God is raising up a remnant outside the church, it will be aligned with Scripture and it will be marked by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Humility that's led by the Holy Spirit. Friends, they almost missed it. They almost missed it. 
And I think we run the risk of almost missing it too. I want to offer some examples just because, you know, I think it's helpful sometimes for us to just to, to, to give some examples. What, what are some ways that the Holy Spirit is working in the world right now? Just to give us some jumping off points. Can I just offer a couple of small examples to you? One is, um, like how I didn't even wait for you guys to respond. I asked you a question. I kept going, can I? Is that okay? All right. <laughs> An example of a movement God is raising up on the margins. Well, you know, membership and church attendance is declining in established churches across North America. You guys know this. Christianity is booming in the global South, Latin America, Africa, Asia. And uh, while there were a little less than 100 million evangelical Christians in 1970, now there's closer to 350 million evangelical Christians in the world today. And the vast majority of that growth has been in the global South. Praise God. Almost all that growth has happened in the global South. Also, in about five to seven years, numbers predict that China will have more Christians than any other country on the planet. <laughs> Praise God. Who says the church can't thrive under opposition, right? Did you know that the largest church in Europe right now is an Afro-Caribbean church in Metro London that's led by a Nigerian pastor. <laughs> I love that. Did you know that Latin, Latino evangelicals are the fastest growing group of evangelicals in the United States today? Man, I, I think that people who say that the church in the United States is crumbling are overlooking our global south brothers and sisters who are revitalizing the religious landscape as they immigrate to our country. And you have stories like this in Canada too. Okay, here's another example. Gen Z is an example of this that I'm somewhat partial to because I work with college students, I love college students, but man, sometimes I hear people talk about Gen Z saying things like they're entitled or lazy or directionless or lost in social media. And, and, and that is sometimes true, okay? <laughs> but man, I am convinced that God is raising up a remnant in this generation. There are many faithful college students that I talk to on a regular basis who have encountered more suffering, more brokenness, more opposition, than I have in my whole 40 years. They have also experienced more breakthrough, more personal encounters with the Holy Spirit, and they have more of a hunger for the things of God than I, I've ever had, or maybe I didn't really experience until quite later in my life. I think it's almost not even possible to be growing up in the world today and be a nominal Christian. The, the student colleges that I talk to who are hungry for more of Jesus and who profess a faith, they are ones who nominal Christianity is not an option for them. God is raising up a remnant. 
Jeremy and I took a group of, I don't know, 20-some college students to Asbury University this past February. We were there in the middle of this outpouring, and I watched Gen Z lead us to the throne of God. I watched some of our Indiana Wesleyan students get up on stage and help lead worship, and, and it was humbling and beautiful and hopeful and led by the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing, what God is doing in the global South, what he's doing in Gen Z, he's doing here too. He's doing it in your community. I know where I live, man, the Holy Spirit is bubbling up in the addiction recovery community in my little town. The Holy Spirit is bubbling up in the middle school that is um, probably unarguably one of the roughest middle schools in the state of Indiana, but there's a group of teachers who get to tr get to school early and pray every day. Where are the places in your community where the Holy Spirit is bubbling up? And if you don't know the answer to that question, that's your assignment. <laughs> if you do know the answer to the question, if you're seeing faces of people and places in your community and around the world, then I bet the Holy Spirit is asking you to join him. I bet the Holy Spirit is saying, you know what? I want you to stand on the edge of the tent and expand the tent and make room for more. They almost missed it. But you want to know why they didn't miss it? The band's going to go ahead and come up now. This thing was happening right in front of their eyes that was very new and very old at the same time. It was fulfilling God's purposes that he'd laid out since the beginning of time. And yet he was doing it outside the tent. And I think the reason why they were able to see it and grab a hold of it, even though it would mean tremendous persecution and suffering for the people right there in that room, was because of this. It wasn't because they weighed out the pros and cons it wasn't because, you know, James made an amazing argument, which he did. It was because they remembered the overwhelming love of God. The overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God that they did not deserve and they didn't earn. And so how could anyone else earn it? Oh, God, bring us back to your love. That is the starting place, the place where we humble ourselves in humility before you. And we say, oh, God, lead us by your Holy Spirit. Oh, God, give us your hope and your optimism because you are working in the world around us. Give us eyes to see. Help us not to miss it. Bring us to that place where your love is everything and it compels us and moves us forward. We want to be in step with your spirit. In your name, Jesus. Amen.